I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Max Fisher, sitting in for Tommy. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I'm uh, I'm not a big sports guy, so I'm going to hit you with a movie <laughs> question instead. Yes. Barbie or Oppenheimer? So, you know, I... Uh... I'm an Oppenheimer guy sure. uh, who lives at a Barbie house. Uh, <laughs> so uh, something tells me that I'll be seeing Barbie probably you're outvoted. before Oppen- I'll probably be outvoted on this one. But I will get to Oppenheimer. Well, your adherence uh, to democratic norms is always yeah. is admirable. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's more like a, it's more dictatorial than that. Actually, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for Oppenheimer, too. I'm a little concerned by the promotional materials are really giving the impression that director Christopher Nolan acquired and detonated a nuclear device, which has concerning... Uh, test ban treaty implications. Yeah, that I mean, he is an ambitious guy. Uh, <laughs> that would definitely be speaking to the kind of megalomania of right. both filmmaking and nuclear weapons development. But uh, um, I, I, I always love the the story, the making of the atomic bomb. Like it's it's endlessly interesting, no matter what yeah. like lens you look at it through. You know. Yeah, well, I'm excited to see his lens. So some quick uh, housekeeping: you can now listen to Pod Save America ad free by subscribing to Friends of the Pod. Join at crooked.com/friends. Comes with all sorts of subscriber bonuses, and now you also get a link to a special ad free. Pod Save America feed. Your ad fast forwarding days are over. Crooked.com slash friends. Also, later this month, Tommy will be joining Lydia Kiesling for an event launching her new novel, Mobility, published by Crooked Media. It'll be at Dynasty Typewriter in LA on July 27th. Tickets at crooked.com slash events. Vulture called Mobility. One of its 14 books we can't wait to read this summer. It's out August 1, and you can pre order crooked.com slash mobility. Ben, who'd you talk to this week? So uh, we are talking to Ambassador Julie Smith, who's the U.S. ambassador to NATO. This what a week for is, a NATO yeah, talk. Well, I mean, this is like uh, the world descends on NATO. The NATO summit's in Vilnius, Lithuania, as we speak, Max. Um, and so I talked to Julie at the front end of the summit. We talked about the issue of Ukrainian membership and how that was being managed. We talked about mm-hmm. uh, some of the issues around support for Ukraine. We talked about you know, the the plans that have been put into this summit in terms of how to defend, you know, Finland and Sweden right. and all members of the alliance going forward. And just a little bit behind the curtain of like, what is it like to be ambassador to NATO? It's not mm. not quite the same thing as having uh, fancy parties at the embassy in, you know, uh, Paris or London, but it's an important job. So I it's bet it's cooler. I think it sounds more interesting. Yeah. I, I You know, what she pointed out, which I didn't think about, is that uh, since the beginning of the war, um, there's endless 
congressional delegations and visitors who oh, want to go visit NATO right. headquarters. Yeah. So I think a lot of her job is probably... Now she is a party uh, host. Yeah, there's a lot of chaperoning, but uh, it's definitely important. Yeah. Uh, well, I can't wait to listen to that. Um, lots of wild, wild news out of Vilnius this week. Let's get into it. The big agenda item, of course, was getting Sweden into NATO. Sweden asked to join the military alliance last year after decades of neutrality in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Made sense to me. But Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said he would block Sweden's membership unless it gave him a bunch of concessions like extraditing Turkish nationals who are accused of aiding militant groups in Turkey. Sweden mostly complied, but Erdogan kept piling on more demands. Then over the weekend, said he would only approve Sweden if Turkey was brought closer to membership in the European Union, which is definitely not happening anytime soon. So it seemed like Sweden joining NATO might not happen until Monday, when abruptly he dropped his demands, largely clearing Sweden's path to NATO. So Ben, what do you make <laughs> of this whole crazy dance? Is this Europe almost getting pulled apart by its divisions or wowing us by overcoming them? I think this is Erdogan uh, being opportunistic and unpredictably opportunistic, right? So it did seem for a while like he wasn't going to do this till after his election because he wanted to have like a card to play in case, you know, he had a lot of heat on him after the election. That mm -hmm. didn't really happen. Uh, but then, yeah, I, like everybody, was looking at that demand that, you know, he'd have to be fast-tracked for European Union membership as, as him killing it. That's what I thought. And then he yeah. does this huge pivot. But I think if you look at it, their economy is in pretty deep trouble, mm. largely because of his own mismanagement. He desperately needs to kind of stabilize the political environment after a close election and get greater investment. He wants the U.S. to sell him F-16s, which right. are held up in Congress because right. of concerns over him holding up Swedish membership. And I think this is him saying, you know what, I, I tack back and forth between mm. East and West, between Russia, China, and Europe and the United States. And now he's tacking towards the West for a while. And I don't think it's at all permanent. Right, <laughs> like right. But I do think he thought like, you know what? I've squeezed as much juice as I can out of this Sweden thing. I'm going to get probably F-16s. I'll probably now get a friendlier investment climate from the West, less pressure on human rights. And that's kind of where I want to be for the next year or two. So it's a huge development. It's a huge win, like an exceeding of expectations for this summit. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, Max, it, like you've looked at Sweden for years. It's, it's a big deal for NATO because it if you want to know how big a deal it is, just look at a map. Right. Um, Sweden is both a country with a huge border on the Baltic Sea, right. which is really important to the protection of the Baltic countries. And strategic islands in the Baltic Sea, too, that can yes. be used for air denial and have this incredible power projection potential. That's right. Like, think of yourself playing a game of risk and just look at that map. And then also <laughs> the Arctic, right? Like, they yeah. now yeah. NATO has, with Finland and Sweden, in addition to the U.S. and Canada, like... NATO has as much, you know, of a presence in the Arctic border-wise as Russia. So it, it's it's a pretty big game changer for for the alliance. This is not like just some, no offense to the smaller countries come. This is a, you know, right. a medium-sized military power right. with a huge navy and a lot of strategic territory. A, a generational strategic loss for Russia too, for sure. Something that really struck me about Erdogan's big pivot on this is in just these six weeks since his super close re-election, he approved Sweden into NATO. He said he would support Ukraine into NATO, which is further than most of NATO will go. He hosted the NATO chief for a visit. He pushed to join the EU. He released some like Ukrainian fighters that he'd been holding in the country, which absolutely infuriated Putin, who was scheduled to visit. And I, I think may have canceled. Like his pivot to the yeah. West has been really stark. It's very noticeable. And, and, and this clearly, you know, 
again, I think uh, he made a lot of bad decisions leading into his own election. Bad, not just because I don't like them in terms of autocracy, but like dumb economic mismanagement. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think this is his best bet to stabilize things. Um, and so he's a pragmatist and a survivor, and this is what he's doing. Right. Still bad. We're not. We're not pro Erdogan. Yeah, we're not pro Erdogan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, no better for political <laughs> freedoms in Turkey. That's for sure. So more NATO news. Biden threw cold water on the possibility of Ukraine joining the alliance, saying the country is not ready. Here's a clip we have teed up. I don't think there is unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now. At this moment, in the middle of a war. But I suspect you and I agree with Biden that there's no real way to bring in Ukraine during the war without triggering a like World War Three, basically with Russia. But what do you make of the arguments, which seems to be pretty popular among some of the like European security elite, that there should be a pledge to admit Ukraine after the war? First of all, like where they landed, which is essentially some formulation where Ukraine will be admitted when certain conditions are met right. is actually, you know, and I'm sure someone might dispute this uh, who wants to elevate this uh, outcome, but is no different than the status quo. Right. <laughs> like right. currently Ukraine has been offered a membership yeah. action plan, which right. means, you know, essentially that when they have a plan that meets a bunch of conditions, they they might get in. Right. right. And right. so I, I, like the outcome is actually really no different. I think that it doesn't make sense uh, from my standpoint to, to be saying, you know, as soon as this war is over, Ukraine is in NATO, or in five years, Ukraine is in NATO, because, precisely because, this will be clearly a part of any resolution of the war. Mm -hmm. Like, security guarantees for Ukraine are going to be a part of any negotiated settlement, if there is a negotiated settlement. And, you know, most likely that's how this war will end. Right. And whether that security guarantee is the U.S. and a bunch of other individual countries coming together and offering Ukraine uh, security assurances, or whether NATO can collectively get every member state to agree to you know Ukraine coming in, which, by the way, Joe Biden doesn't even know he can deliver that. You know, yeah. So mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I think he's being responsible here is like, it's hard to promise something that you, you don't know that you can deliver, particularly if it's very much tied to the outcome of this huge thing that's happening, this war. I think Biden wants to preserve some flexibility to define both the nature of NATO membership or an alternative security guarantee, like the if you talk to some people in Washington, you've probably had these conversations too, Max, like some people point to like the Taiwan Relations Act, like mm -hmm. a, a formulation where legislatively the United States is committed to helping Ukraine defend itself, but it falls short of Article 5. That's probably not good enough for the Zelensky and the Ukrainians, but it, it demonstrates that there's kind of a a spectrum of possibilities here. And I think Biden wants to preserve some of that flexibility. There's also a good case, I feel like, that getting over your skis with a big preemptive commitment, which is, of course, the 2008 commitment the yeah. U.S. made in the first place, yeah. just ends up opening yourself up to all sorts of unforeseen problems. As we, I mean, again, I don't subscribe to the idea that that led inexorably to this war, I but I, I lived it for eight years in government where it was awkward that in 2008, before Barack Obama was president, right. George Bush on the way out the door had basically been like, sure, Georgia, Ukraine, you can both be part of NATO someday. Right. And that was clearly not going to happen. And yet that kind of lurked in the backdrop of every NATO summit. Georgia was occupied in right. two, two places by Russia at that and, point. And so, remains that way. Yeah, you're right. It's a really good uh, reminder that you have to know what you can deliver before you make a commitment. Let's talk about the U.S. decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine which is obviously super controversial. Um, so quick overview. Cluster bombs are a kind of artillery shell or rocket, but filled with lots of small 
grenade-like bomblets, they're called, that explode over a wide area. Much of the world has banned cluster bombs since 2008. The reason is that at least 10% of those bomblets, and sometimes quite a lot more, fail to explode on impact. And this leaves the ground littered with thousands or even millions of tiny explosives. Inevitably, after fighting ends, civilians will step on them, pick them up. For years or decades after the war, you'll be hearing these awful stories, as you still are in a lot of countries, about you know farmers losing legs, or it's often it's children picking them up and losing arms or worse. Ukraine and Russia are not signatories to the ban, and there have been reports of both countries using them already in the war. China, India, and the U.S. also not signatories, which means the U.S. has big stockpiles. Ukraine says it needs American cluster bombs because it is running out of artillery shells faster than the West can ramp up production to replace them. Arms control groups say the cost to civilians is too high, and the U.S. will weaken the global norm against their use. Ben, what do you think? Was this the right call? I, I I don't think so. I don't like it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I, you know listeners of this podcast have heard me rant about uh, my experience in Laos. So yeah. just to summarize it, like I got very involved in the effort to secure funding to clean up unexploded ordnance in Laos. The most heavily bombed country in history was Laos during the Vietnam War and the secret war in the Laos, and uh, eighty million bombs were dropped on Laos. Many of them cluster munitions. There are many of these bomblets and children today are still getting their limbs blown off. They pick it up, it looks like a ball, it explodes. Uh, or a farmer hits it, it explodes. So that's 50 years later, you know? Um, yeah. And so no matter what anybody says, like the use of these weapons will lead to that happening in right. Ukraine. Now, right. um, some people will say, well, the Russians and Ukrainians are using it anyway. Look, I think where I side with the arms control community on this is that like a lot of effort has been put into developing the norm against this. Mm. Um, and if the lesson is that, well, in extremists, the norm means nothing. Well, then the norm means nothing. You know, like, and 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 so you, I worry in general about this war, kind of being a death knell to arms control, like across the board. Like yeah. we've already seen, like the right. nuclear uh, arms control infrastructure fall apart. You yeah. know, Russia's not even in the last remaining treaty of the New Start Treaty. They're barely hanging on to that, and now you get into the cluster munitions. And look, part of the case that the U.S. has been trying to make throughout this war is kind of a moral high ground. Just saying, oh, well, the Russians are using it, so we have to use this, you know, um, is is not an argument that wins me over. Now, to be fair, um, there's clearly a military need. Um, clearly, there's shortages of ammunition, and this can both, you know, make some of that whole and give Ukraine a greater capacity to break kind of an entrenched front line. Um so yeah, is there a military necessity? Yes. Is Ukraine's military position probably marginally improved by this decision? Mm-hmm. Yes. I just still don't. I mean, if norms mean anything, um, you have to fortify them in hard times and not just good ones. You know. Yeah, I think I lean the same way you do. I think if I had to articulate what I thought was the strongest possible argument for sending them, it would be the Ukrainian argument that. Look, if we run out of artillery shells and they push through our lines, Russian occupation is far deadlier than the long-term harm from cluster munitions. And like, let us make that calculation with our own soil and our own country. But the thing that gives me pause is that I don't think we actually know that they are on the verge of running out of artillery shells. And there's been a constant issue in arms transfers and generally where the Ukrainians are pretty far ahead of the West in terms of war aims. Like their aims are not just to halt the Russian advance, yeah. but to retake every inch of Ukrainian soil, which I completely get as a war aim. But I think that it's it's valid to ask, is the kind of gamble that you want to take one of a 
pretty lowish odds of using cluster munitions will help Ukraine retake more of its territory against the absolute certainty that it will lead to far greater civilian deaths. Yeah. And uh, the, the other two pieces of this, first, there's some people who've said in the, like the, there's kind of unnamed U.S. military analysts saying that the explosion rate of these uh, you know unexploded munitions is much lower than, say, what was dropped on Laos. That it's mm-hmm. like only like one or two percent. Which nobody believes. I don't believe it. Yeah. I, I, I <laughs> Even military contractors yeah, are like, it's seven times that. I know. I really don't want to challenge. Like, I've been in rooms where you get the rosiest yeah, assessment. I mean, right. oftentimes when the U.S. government wants to get to a, a certain answer, sure. they find the best data for right, it. Right, and right. that that's what this felt like to me. And the other thing is that like on the Ukrainian, the most compelling point beyond battlefield necessity is the one you made, which is like the Ukrainians saying, look, it's our territory, it's our people. Mm-hmm. But they don't actually know what, it's not like they've been living with cluster munitions for decades and they're like, yeah, yeah we can handle this. That's like, true. Right. They're, they're, they're understandably not thinking 10 years, 20 years ahead here. But if like, to your point, if they engage in some brutal effort to retake Crimean Peninsula with cluster munitions, then end up littering the entire peninsula, like... Uh, that's going to be a problem, you know? Um, so I, I just think one of the reasons we're in trouble in general in American foreign policy is that we only abide by norms when it's convenient. Mm-hmm. You know? right. And this and is another one of these yeah. examples. You know? Yeah. There's also, I feel like there's a kind of culture in Washington right now that the Ukrainians are always right because it's the Ukrainians saying it. And I, yeah. you know, very much think they are the right side of the war. I'm very glad that we are aiding them as much as we are. But I feel like when I get into the weeds, a lot of these arm transfer disputes, it's it's not clear to me that their assessment is always the best one. No, and their assessment is logical. Um, sure, it's just give us everything. Right. But that doesn't mean, you know, the fact that there's never been a weapon system that they didn't want right. indicates <laughs> that this is not like a, you know, right. carefully considered, right. you know, right. Uh, right. Uh, inventory. Right. Yeah. And why wouldn't they take it? Of well, course, they think they I, have the I, political I, capital. If too. I was them, I'd be doing the I same thing. You know? yeah, yeah. I, exactly. So let's do quick Pergozin update, everybody's favorite time of the week. Our guys had a, another weird one. <laughs> yeah. uh, so after leading his mercenary army into Russia and taking the city of Rostov, uh, we've learned a few big things. Um, first, a big military camp magically appeared in Belarus where Prigozhin and his Wagner fighters were supposed to be in exile, but the camp is empty which we know because the Belarusian government weirdly <laughs> chose to show that to American journalists. Yeah. Um, and the president of Belarus said that Prigozhin was still in Russia. And a couple of days later, the Kremlin said that Putin had met with Prigozhin to discuss the future of Wagner forces, which, of course, are deployed in Ukraine and in several countries in the Middle East and Africa. I've also talked to a couple of analysts who say that they think the more we learn about this, the more it looks to them like it was attempted mutiny, maybe more than it was a coup in the sense that it was aimed at forcing Putin to make policy changes rather than to topple him, although that's some speculation there. And they also think, and this I do find persuasive, that Prigozhin may have had tacit support from elements of the Russian military, which would explain how he walked into two major Russian cities and sees them relatively bloodlessly, and why it looks like it was actually FSB paramilitaries rather than Russian regular troops that blocked him from Moscow. So, Ben, what do you make (laughs) of just the continued Prigozhin circus? I need to preface this, as I think we all should, by saying, like, we don't know exactly what the hell's going on here. Of course, of course. That said, uh, 
it does seem like he's definitely still in Russia, right? There's just, you know, yeah. like these people are tracking his private plane flying around. People are saying they saw him. The Kremlin's putting out readouts of meetings. It does feel to me like, number one, clearly Putin is not doing what he said he was going to do on television, which was mm. this guy's a traitor and he belongs in prison. So it still holds that, like, that was embarrassing <laughs> for Putin and he didn't follow up on what he said in threatening this guy. The fact that the way the Kremlin discussed it was like how Wagner is going to continue to be in the fight is like it seems like a priority for Putin and the Russian, I don't know, military machine is to not lose these Wagner fighters. Right. right? And what they clearly want is for Wagner to fight under the normal chain of command. Like they got Mm. a little uncomfortable with, you know, this kind of bifurcated system. I can see why. Yeah. Well, (laughs) exactly. Right. Um, And so it feels like. There's some negotiation happening around, you know, will the Wagner guys fight with the regular forces? Will Prigozhin kind of stay in the tent? Is he going to be paid off? Is he going to be killed? Like you know, right. there's a there's right. a spectrum of things that could still happen to Prigozhin, but it, it, this all feels like an effort to try to, you know, continue to hug Wagner into the war effort under a dis- different arrangement than was clearly not working out for anybody before the mutiny. Um, but like I have questions, Max. Like you and I, you know, and Tommy, we 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 had been tracking towards maybe doing like a special episode on yeah. Wagner globally. Like yeah. I keep wondering about what what is Wagner doing in Africa? Like who, right. I mean, we who's mentioned running, this last who's week. Who's running like, the mines? Who's running all this stuff? Yeah. Who's running mines? Who's running right. private security for you know uh, certain African leaders? Who's fomenting instability and disinformation campaigns from Mali to Madagascar. Like there, right. there's still, and that may be part of this discussion too. It's just like what, you know, given the distrust between Prigozhin and the FSB, mm-hmm. which would be the other kind of candidate for doing that kind of stuff. Like they may actually also be negotiating this global footprint. You know? Right. I'm sure. Cause they need access to all of this. Prigozhin has a lot of leverage cause he has the keys to all that stuff. If yeah. they just, you know, push him down an elevator shaft, it all disappears. Yeah. I feel like something that, I'm always being reminded of of Russia is that we think of Putin as the kind of like all powerful dictator pulling all the strings in charge of everything. So if Prigozhin displeases him, then he'll disappear in a puff of smoke. But at the end of the day, he's just a guy in a suit. And his power, this is a point that you've made too, I know, his power really comes from his ability to mediate and balance between all of these power centers within Russia that he's built up. And Prigozhin has a lot of actual power. So, you know, I think that he probably is feeling like he has some need to like, as you said, like keep him inside the tent, keep him on sides and keep him, you know, working well with everybody else in the system. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that any authoritarian system, we usually mistake it for like a monolith, you know? Right. And Putin in particular has got got so kind of pumped up, you know, over the course of the last decade in kind of the Western press into this kind of all-powerful one-man-one-rule guy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like he's clearly the most powerful guy in Russia, but like there are people with independent sources of power, you right. know. Often the people who end up getting killed or shoved off of balconies are not necessarily powerful people. Right. They're usually people that have fallen from power. You know, like yeah, it's right, it's a Prigozhin right. after he's completely lost his empire and he's two years from now he's living in London has an accident. Right. You know? Right. And so the people that control guns and resources and money tend to be in constant negotiation with one another with Putin as the kind of negotiator in chief. And right. that's what this feels like. I mean the whole thing really reminds me of and you and I were texting about this, the um whole incident at like 
sort of like internal domestic conflict in Russia in 2014 with yeah. Ramzan Kadyrov as yeah. the kind of like warlord in chief of Chechnya. And Kadyrov was like really bucking Putin, not to the same extent as marching on Moscow, but he had these troops who were like paramilitary guys who were raiding Russian businesses. He was defying the FSB and I think actually opened fire in FSB troops at yeah. one point. And then all of a sudden, Putin disappeared for a couple of weeks. Everybody thought maybe there was a coup, but then he reappeared and all of a sudden, Kadyrov, instead of being pushed at a window, is back on side and now is Putin loyalist number one. So anything could happen, yeah. but I would not be shocked if Prigozhin actually was more loyal and more inside the tent than ever as a result of it's this. It's possible, yeah. And and one, it's interesting you might make that point about the FSB. Like I think another point we should make is that we hear FSB and just think, okay, the Russian version of the CIA. Right. The CIA, for all of its warts over the years, is not the FSB because the FSB also runs like a business empire, right? right. Like the KGB, right. when it collapsed, just like bought, like kind of took over a bunch of business interests. And so the, there are guys like fighting over just control of natural resources or businesses. And so it's not even like there's one normal intelligence service. They're all kind of in some grift, you know? I think the one... Takeaway, the reason I still think this has been really bad for Putin, even if Prigozhin you know, returns to being a loyalist. Definitely not good for Putin. I'm with you there. Is because his argument, which we've articulated on the podcast before, is like the time is on his side. Right. That the more time goes on, the right. West will become divided. The West is more dysfunctional. Ukraine will be weakened. And this is the first indication that actually, you know, time might not be Putin's friend. Like it may right. open up risks for mut further mutinies or for further infighting. And so that's that's an important lesson here that, that you know, the idea of time being Putin's friend, which he, you know, begun to beat into even people like me. Um, mm -hmm. Well, now that's called into question. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. 
I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. So let's talk about the big news from Europe. European politics had like, I think quietly a super seismic shift yes. this week. Yeah. I know you and I are both really excited to get into this. So Mark Rutte, the Dutch prime minister since 2010, resigned on Friday. His governing coalition collapsed over disagreements on immigration policy, which is why he's stepping down. And this feels, I think, like a very big deal to me because Rutte has always embodied how a lot of the European political establishment, especially the center-right, responded to the rise of the far-right over immigration backlash in the mid-2010s. Some leaders like Angela Merkel in Germany stood up to the far-right on immigration and at the time actually looked like they could lose power over it. But others like Mark Rutte, and he was the like big leader of this faction, really tried to co-opt the far-right by embracing really extreme and really draconian anti-immigration policies. Uh, and the Dutch far right is very crazy and very scary. And Ruta argued that this was the only way to keep them out of power, which he did. But he kind of sold his party's soul along the way. And also a lot of migrants and refugees suffered for it. Um, and his government collapsed last week, kind of tellingly, not because of a disagreement with the far right, which has not gained that much power in the last 10 years, but rather disagreement with centrist parties in his coalition, who said that they just could not stomach more of his harsh immigration policies. So elections will be in November. Ben, what do you think this tells us about the trajectory of Europe, future of Europe? So for, and just to be specific, right? Like I think the policy was that he was insisting that the children yeah. of refugees, uh, if you're a child outside of the Netherlands, you couldn't be reunited with your refugee parents, even if they had status in the Netherlands for like two years, which was kind of just cruel, like right. um, who are we? Who are we even pretending to help? Yeah, with that? And, and and so it, it, there's a a few things that the, that that this says to me because you're right. Ruta is like a consummate survivor. He somehow right. made it through like 13 years in Dutch politics, which is a lot of coalition building, and he's a you know a very capable, smart center right politician. Sure. The fact that he chose to lose his coalition mm -hmm. rather than acceding to like children being reunited with their parents, which also numerically would have been a very small number of people. This is a guy who's a weather vane who's telling us that mm -hmm. he's his read, I'm not saying it's right, but his read 
on Dutch politics, and it's a pretty good laboratory for European politics generally, is that people are just want an absolute hardline immigration. And mm-hmm. that I would rather piss off and lose my centrist allies and collapse my coalition than pick this fight with the far right. It doesn't mean that the far right is going to come to power in the Netherlands tomorrow or across Europe tomorrow, but it does indicate it's one more data point of how much the immigration issue continues to be a driver mm-hmm. of European politics to the right. We talked about the Greek, you know, the disaster of 700 plus people dying in all the in a, in a migrant ship off the coast of Greece. All the kind of you know subsequent reporting kind of indicates that the Greek Coast Guard, at at minimum, was negligent in this mm-hmm. case. Right. Do you see any uproar? We in, in the Greek election, we saw a movement further to the right, which we talked about last week, right? So that's in Greece. We see this in the Netherlands. In France, we've seen uh, protests over the uh, like totally unjustified killing uh, of a young man, like kind of familiar protests to Americans. It had a kind of a Black Lives Matter feel to it against mm-hmm. uh, the police, but it's led to, I think, a pretty robust backlash against the protests in French politics. It, it just feels like we're in a moment in kind of continental European politics mm. where any immigrant attitudes are really building. There's mm-hmm. no cost to being further to the right on those issues. There's few outlets for the left. And so the outlets lead to like protests like we've seen in, in, in France. Right. Uh, and, you know, the other variable I'd put into this, Max, is one of the things I've, I was in Europe a couple of times this summer, like you hear a lot about the Ukrainian refugees, that this is not small. These are right. millions of people. Yeah. This is costing yeah. us a lot of money. Right. And even though they've been more welcome to white Ukrainian refugees than black and brown people from the global south, which is its own kind of uh, difficult issue to, to wrestle with morally and ethically, it is like one more brick on the scale of societies being like, you know, we want to pull up the drawbridge, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I was saying, before, like you and I, like one of our first kind of face-to-face encounters was when you came into my office yeah. in like the late Obama years, it was like 15 or 16. Usually reporters would come in because they wanted to talk about like something that was blaring in the headlines. You wanted to come and talk about the trends of European far-right populism. Um, it's so one of the most important stories of our time. You were quite prescient, man. Uh, you were also <laughs> talking about social media before other people were, so you should get credit for being ahead of the curve on all these things. I'm wondering what you make of this, because you, you point out to me in text that on the one end, it does feel that way. On the other end, there have been a lot of predictions, right. uh, including in the Times where we read yeah, some of these articles yeah, the last yeah, couple yeah, of days, yeah. of like some far-right wave coming and... Meanwhile, Le Pen never gets elected in France. And, right. But I mean, how do you see this wave of developments as compared to previous, you know, boomlets for the far right? Uh, so it's funny because I think I actually have almost the exact opposite reading from you on this. And, and we're, we're both. I, I want to be wrong. Yeah. And it makes for more interesting discussion. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I read it as it, first in the Netherlands specifically, and then like what it means, like in the Netherlands specifically, I read it as like Ruta kind of knowing that his brand as the like center right guy who went to the far right was kind of toxic now. Cause I think he retired too. Yeah. Like I think he yeah. said he's out of politics. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, my read was that he knows that if not his party, then his stamp on the party is not something that the political system will accept anymore. And, you know, the far right in the Netherlands has been completely stalled out for the last 10 years. And this is like... It's hit like a ceiling. You know, right, right. Wilders is like, you know, 10% kind of... Like out. 15%. Yeah. And the thing is, if you look across Europe, for the most part, every far right party hit a ceiling of 15% somewhere around 2015, 2016, with a couple of exceptions. Like in Sweden, they bopped up to 
I think, 17%. They mostly stayed there. So I think it kind of looked for a few years like, and I, I think, honestly, like the American media played into this. Anytime a far-right party gained some seats or came in third in election, it would be, you know, blared on the front pages. The far-right is taking over. They're winning everything. And they did advance in the aggregate in Europe, like 2014, 15, 16, and like very rapidly. It was very scary and had a lot of major policy implications, like in the Netherlands or Poland or Hungary where they took yeah. power. But the thing is, if you actually like talk to people who are tracking the data continental wide, the far right has had like a catastrophic last few years. In uh, I think it was 2018, they lost seats. 2019, they lost seats. 2020, they lost seats. In 2021, all four years in a row, they in the aggregate across Europe were losing their foothold and were losing popularity. And like, again, there were some places where they were gaining. But I think that you really started to see like once the arrivals dropped in yeah. the EU, which peaked in 2015, 2016, the backlash sort of faded. And also people saw what it was like to have the far right, even if not in knocking power. On the door, yeah. yeah, knocking on the yeah. door, right. And it was scary. And it's, you're right that Marine Le Pen does continue to gain seats in the French parliament, which is scary. There are places where it's advancing, but I feel like if you look at the numbers, you just see this consistent story of they get up to like one in six one in seven support, and then they just stay there, which is really bad, to be clear. Yeah, I guess my fear, that's really well taken. I guess my fear is a little different. I don't necessarily see mm. like a succession of far-right parties taking over Western Europe, but what I do see is the far-right setting the terms of politics, you sure. know, uh, right. to some extent. Right. Which and, is what Ruta represented. Yeah, and, and if you look at the... You know, if you look at the map, right, Greece pretty far right right now in addition to Hungary and Poland. Slovakia, you have a, a progressive leader who's not running again and right. the far right party or like certainly the right wing party uh, somewhat ascendant. The Balkans is got some real issues uh, with Russian interference and nationalist leaders. Yeah. So you, you have some real problems. Then you have like, you know, in Italy where someone has kind of moderated like you know right. she's she's not like as far right as like the the Mussolini cautionary <laughs> notes were um but like this is a you know pretty far right of center government in Italy mm -hmm. in France you have a Macron who came up as a centrist and is kind of generally looked more over his right shoulder than his left mm. so i guess it's interesting you're right to to kind of throw some cold water on like the far right alarmism and yet it's still not clear to me what the center to left yeah. future is, right? right? Like there's, is it Olaf Schultz very like very just shade to the left of center? Right. There's some green parties that made some inroads, but they haven't taken control. Social Democrats have had some hard luck in the Nordic countries even recently. So like, to me, it might be less like a far right wave and more like a just gradual pulling of European politics to the center right in ways that are probably not going to solve problems either. And so, like, I don't really know where that goes. I think France will be the bellwether. I think, you know, who follows Macron in a couple of years will obviously be a huge issue. Le Pen has consistently not been able to get even close to a, sure. a majority. So I'm not sure it's going to be her, but... But their political parties There's just like a vacuum exist. out there in Europe. Yeah. It just, it's hard. Well, where do you think it's France going? France especially. Like, I mean, I think, I, I think that in... I, France to me kind of reads as its own thing because all their political parties disintegrated a few years ago, basically. Yeah. But they also have our first past the post electoral system, which is just like the worst possible <laughs> yeah, system you could system, have. Yeah, right. Yeah. So they have, you know, 
in Germany, you can have like the far right gains a little bit, the center right gains a little bit, but because it's a proportional system with a bunch of parties, they work out a nice governing coalition, everything is fine. But in France, because it's this winner take all system, they have a presidential election, someone gets 2% more and they're the crazier candidate. And then we end up with a nut job in, in charge yeah. of Europe's second largest economy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, I guess where I land is that I think on the one hand, the optimistic thing is that I do think that the like firewall against the far right, it seems like it has basically held and I don't see any reason to think that it's going to break. And I think the establishment parties and voters have, again, with the caveat of France, have learned how to like, keep that in place. Yeah. But I think that your point is a really good one about policy generally moving right on immigration specifically, which Europe was already like yeah. pretty yeah. tough on immigration. And the fact that like there can be a boat with dozens of people on it that sinks and nobody in Europe blinks because yeah. of course that's beneficial policy for years as they want to encourage these kinds of things because they think that that is a deterrent to people crying to cross. And I mean, Europe's immigration policy, I know as an American, I don't have a lot of ground to stand on, no, but no. it's it's really bad. Yeah, And yeah. That, that seems to be part of what the European establishment has set on is, okay, we're going to keep out the extremists in the far right by adopting the most draconian policies, the most extreme policies that we have to, to keep arrivals, quote unquote, under control. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... On that issue, that that you know, it's just going to be a source of tension for many years because it, it's yeah. not going to the migration's not going to stop, or particularly right. climate change. Right. Um, I just I the only other thing I'd say to wind this down is, and I don't have the answer is like, I think part of what I also saw in France is like when you have an explosion like that, mm -hmm. pub, public um, unrest and dissatisfaction. Part of the reason why is there's no left political option. You know, there's there's nowhere to channel energy into politics, you right. know. And right. one of the things that social democratic parties and green parties and just left parties in general need to do in Europe is present themselves as as like a vehicle for that kind of political expression, right? Um, because right now it just feels like there are these far right parties and then there are these careful centrist politicians who like generally tack right on a bunch of stuff. There's some social democrats who get to power when they, you know, are taking advantage of uh, economic issues or it's their kind of turn. But there's not like a coherent, it's not unlike the United States, to be honest. Yeah. There's not a yeah. coherent, like, 10-year plan for the left here. You know? right, right. So that we'll do that. Maybe that's a special right. episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the violence in the West Bank town of Janine last week. Um Israeli forces about a week and a half ago launched a major raid in the Palestinian refugee camp in Janine, including airstrikes and bulldozers. Twelve Palestinians and one Israeli were killed, and thousands of Palestinian civilians fled what they called two days of terror that left homes in rubble. Israel described as an operation to clear out militants and weapons. Um, Janine has a lot of significance in the conflict in 1948. Many Palestinians who fled were expelled from their homes in what is now Israel, as a result of Israel's creation, ended up in the Janine refugee camp. Um, a number of grassroots resistance groups have arisen there. Um, some of those groups claimed nine of the 12 Palestinians who died in last week's raids as their fighters. Uh, and about a year ago, an American journalist, Shireen Abu Akleh, was killed by Israeli forces while she was covering another Israeli military raid of the Janine refugee camp. Ben, what do you think this latest violence tells us about the 
long-term trajectory of the conflict or where it is now? Nothing good. I mean, uh, like in terms of new things it tells us, in addition to what we've you know talked about on this podcast before, you know, one is the Israeli state under this government bringing kind of Gaza tactics to the West Bank mm. is a new development, right? Yeah. So like this wasn't a full-scale war on Janine like on Gaza, but it had a lot of those... You know, it had some echoes of that, right? Yeah. It had like military incursions and airstrikes and and kind of a really kind of brutal uh, assault on a, a, a densely populated. I mean, Janine is incredibly densely populated. Um, uh, and, and so like it, it, usually that leads to kind of the continued use of that kind of tool. And so like if we are starting to see the Israeli government bring those tactics into the West Bank, that that's a new development. And if you if you couple that with settlement expansion and 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 kind of more impunity for settler violence and displacement of Palestinians, like it it, it starts to feel like a the occupation evolving into something that is more aggressive in terms of mm-hmm. of treatment and displacement of Palestinians. Um, then the second thing is the, the Palestinian Authority is totally irrelevant, you know, like, yeah. like, um, yeah. and, 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 you know, we don't harp on this too much because oftentimes people blame the Palestinian Authority for things they can't control. Like, but it is the case that this 87 year old, uh, you know, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, has long since, you know, ceased to be a relevant figure to right. young Palestinians. He's not delivering anything. Um, the Palestinian Authority kind of cooperates on security in the West Bank to some extent with Israel, but they 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 couldn't they couldn't address militancy in in Janine if they wanted to right um and and so to me like the the people always warn of the collapse of the Palestinian Authority like well this is to me that always is probably more slow motion than it all at once and this is kind of evidence of a, a, a of of the slow motion collapse of the Palestinian Authority and so what does that mean it, and I'm curious what you think about this Max because to me it mm-hmm. looks like a more aggressive far-right government in Israel and the West Bank mm-hmm. and an even less, you know, uh, relevant Palestinian Authority opening up a vacuum among the Palestinian public that could be filled by anybody, you know, um, or nobody at all. And, and none of that feels good, you know. I think that's exactly right. And what it really makes me think of are the predictions that I've heard, I feel like from a long time from people like Nathan Thrall, that what would happen when the two-state solution collapsed, which it has yeah. is that the Palestinian Authority would would basically dissolve, not just in the sense of being a government, a nominal government for Palestinians, but being a tool that Israel has used to bring stability to the West Bank so that it can control the West Bank without having to occupy it directly or rule it directly through military occupation, which it did in the past and was catastrophic. It's part of what the PA is supposed to do. Yeah. It can't carry the weight of that anymore, so effectively does not exist as a stability and security guarantor. So I think part kind of what we're seeing in the introduction, like you said, of Gaza-like tactics is we are seeing an inching towards a form of return to rule in the West Bank by direct military occupation, not in the sense of stationing troops in every corner in the refugee yeah. camp, but in the sense that they're going to hang outside these cities. And then every time they feel like they need to go in, which if it's even if it's just once a year, which is what it is so far, is catastrophic for these communities, but it's also not good. I know this is the ultimate cliche when talking about Israel-Palestine, but it's also not good for Israel because yeah. they did that before. 
And it does not go well for anybody. Yeah. I mean, reading between the lines of all the coverage, like one of the things you started to notice, you know, sometimes you get more honest Israeli security officials speaking in their own background. And what a, a number of them pointed out is like, they're not trying to dismantle like a well-evolved network in Janine. Right. Like some of these people like might have some association with factions like Hamas or Islamic Jihad or something, but like some of them are just like, pissed off young people. Yeah, it's just neighboring and, guys. And so they're like, you know, there'll be some attack on Israeli civilians in Tel Aviv and then they'll go in there and try to get the people. But like the people are just, there's not, they're not mapping some terrorist organization. And that, to what you had, you're talking about in Nathan's good analysis is like, that's a recipe for just like militarized, you know, direct rule. Right. Because- But it's also a symptom of it. Yeah. It, well, and it's going to exacerbate, obviously, all the grievances right. of the Palestinians. So I, it's just, it is what it is and it's not good. Yeah. I mean, it's ironically in a, in a, in a way- in a cynical way, Israel would almost be better off with a Hamas-ruled West Bank because that's an organization that, you know, as they are in Gaza, like, brings a form of stability and has a form of, like, strategic calculus that Israel can deal with. But the And you can negotiate ceasefires with them. Exactly, right. You can negotiate with them. But what de facto, indirect, effective military occupation creates, exactly as you're saying, is endless sentiment for, you know, guys in the block who want to pick up a gun because they're tired yeah. of living this way. And a raid is not going to solve, is never going to solve that. No. And and the recipe, there's no, you've got a far right government, you've got BB under, feeling cornered in the judicial system. You've got people in his coalition agitating for more aggressive policies. And you have a U.S. election with a very cautious American president when it comes to any distance from Israel. Right. So the recipe for the next year is not a great one. You know, you know that, that actually makes me think of something that the so many of the people in the Israeli cabinet who are agitating for full direct occupation or annexation yeah. or de facto annexation of the West Bank, they're actually pretty young. Yeah. And they probably don't remember what that era was like before the Oslo Accords, before the PA. So yeah. they actually have no idea what they're asking for, what they're ordering up, which as if it was not catastrophic enough, seems like an even bigger powder keg. Yeah, no, that's right. They're, they're kind of the post-Oslo reactionary generation. <laughs> right, and it's all just idealistic for them. So speaking of Biden, um, he had some uh, harsh words, at least. It's words and words or something. For Benjamin Netanyahu, he said that he would not invite Netanyahu to the White House and called his government one of the most extreme he's seen in Israel. We have a clip, so let's listen to that. So it's not all Israel now in the West Bank, all Israel's problem, but they are part of the problem, particularly those individuals in the cabinet who say they have no right. To be, we can settle anywhere we want. They have no right to be here, et cetera. Ben, does this change Netanyahu's calculus, nudge him in the right direction at all, do you think, or is it too little too late? I don't think so. I think uh, for Joe Biden, that's gone pretty far. You know? Sure. Um, right. It's progress. It, it, and... Uh, um, I think it is a bit of a message that it's not just total politics as usual where we just pretend like right. what we're seeing isn't happening. There's nothing behind it, though. There's no, like, conditionality of assistance or diplomatic support. The U.S. Yeah. is still very actively involved in a negotiation with Saudi Arabia for a normalization deal with Israel, in which the U.S. would make all the concessions right. to help Israel. So, right. like, what, what, it's it's a, the, you know, it, it's a rhetorical step and, you know, to be Critical of you know Obama often took rhetorical steps without uh, 
the, the, those kinds of substantive steps too. Like I, so I know what I speak. I, I do think it's setting up. I just think that that particularly within the Democratic Party, at some point in mm. the next three years, there's going to be a real re- like, you know, uh, debate about this, and probably not before the next election. Yeah. Um, but it just feels like it's going to get harder and harder to pretend like we're not seeing what we're seeing. And if even Joe Biden is saying, hey, I, I can't you know, make a business as usual and have Bibi Netanyahu smiling next to me in the Oval Office, that, that really is a, a change. It does seem telling that even the Democratic Party old guard can't stomach they just can't supporting this government anymore. Yeah. I I agree that it feels like, and I think everybody in the party basically knows that the reckoning over Israel policy is coming, and this feels like yeah. everything the Biden administration does feels like a tacit acknowledgement of that, even if it's just in like we're not gonna. What's the point of carrying this guy's water? But I do wonder if it's if it's too late for that. I mean, you talked about this before. I but, think yeah, it may very well be. Yeah. But it, I guess it's still it's still worth taking the right position because it's going no, to it's still going right to happen. Position. I mean, this is sure. still these issues are not finished, right? Right. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's end on some good news before we get to the interview. Um, or. Good-ish, potentially good-ish news, which is uh, it's what we aim for here. Yes. Uh, after a couple of really rough years of rising tensions between the U.S. and China, there are some hints of maybe a possible thaw. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen visited last week. No big agreements or take-homes, but it was congenial-ish, at least, which is something. And after the trip, John Kerry, the climate czar, announced that he would go to China, which I believe is going to happen this coming weekend. So how are you feeling about U.S.-China? After this week, well, I always thought like the most dangerous and disturbing thing, kind of over the last year, was this vacuum opened up where we weren't even really talking at any level, and that's just. And and after a pandemic period where there wasn't a lot of talking, just for obvious reasons, and so just kind of routinizing like Blinken was there, then Yellen was there, then John Kerry's going. Like at least it feels like there's lines of communication, so that it's it's like there's a floor underneath the the relationship. Yeah. and that may seem like just diplomatic, but no, like it, it creates work, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you know, you work into the meeting and then out of the meeting and then the officials follow up on certain things. And instead of just kind of escalating countermeasures, you know, try to hit the pause button on some of that stuff, right? right. Um, so talking is good. Um, I did think that, uh, and carry going is important because everybody who looks at this relationship uh has always thought that the one issue where mm-hmm. we should be working together is climate. And, and where both sides want to work together. Where both sides want to work together, both sides have an interest in working together, the rest of the world wants us to work together. So if John Kerry can get anywhere that is better than where we've been on climate, then that's a good thing, right? Because yeah. uh, you can't solve climate crisis without the two uh, biggest emitters sitting down and working together. The Yellen you know, choreography was interesting because she opened with some pretty like harsh complaints about Chinese treatment of American businesses and some of the it's kind true. of onerous, yeah. uh, you know, heavy hand of the Chinese state on foreign firms operating in China. So she kind of registered that, but then kind of pivoted to like, but we need to work together and we need to address kind of global economic issues. So I think that's probably meant to kind of chill out mm-hmm. markets that were nervous about this right? Um, and kind of resume a sense that the U.S. and China are not like, like they're both a member of the global economy, you know. Right. Um, but at the same time, like the Chinese recently announced potentially some pretty far-reaching restrictions on on chips coming in the United States in reprisal for the United States, having all these controls on technology flowing into China. 
we'll see if that continues to escalate, you know, like the the decoupling, the, the kind of split and supply chains between our two countries. Like, um, so and altogether, I think it's positive and it's good that we're talking, but like structurally, it's not like they resolved something like that. They right. just kind of agreed we should at least be talking to each other. Right. It does seem like the main sources of the collapse in relations over the last years are still there, where yeah. the U.S. tech sanctions, China's increasingly hostile stance towards Taiwan, um, hostile doesn't even capture it, yeah, actually. Yeah. They're, existential. Right, yeah, existential threat to Taiwan, um, and just generally the like zero-sum security view that both countries seem to take to one another yeah. and to Asia. But I agree that talking at all is... I think not just as a like, oh, it's a nice step. I think it's actually really valuable for the signal it yeah. sends to domestic audiences in both the U.S. and China to say like, hey, we are now focused on working together instead of being angry at each other. Yeah. I think that's really meaningful. The signal that it sends to Wall Street, investors, of course, the signal that it sends to a lot of other countries in the region, which, yeah. you know, I, I know you talk to people in the governments of those countries. and they, yeah, were they just, don't like it when we're at odds with China. Right. They're losing their shit yeah. because they think that the, this war in Ukraine is going to look like a cakewalk compared to yeah. if there was ever a yeah. conflict between the U.S. and China. And I do think that there is... There's kind of a like semi-contrarian case that tensions between U.S. and China could be the most important foreign policy story of 2023 yeah. if it goes poorly. Yeah. But um, let's hope that things continue to improve. And, and we've been playing into kind of the Chinese narrative like in the global south too. Like uh, the, yeah. you know, we won't even talk to these people even right. though it's Absolutely. been two ways. But yeah. it, it, we benefit from it. I, I, I think that the... Um, the other thing I just dangle out here is that there's been total bipartisanship on China. It's mm -hmm. like the only bipartisan thing in yeah. Washington, right? Yeah. And it's almost been like a competition for who could be tougher, albeit the Democrats focus more on things like industrial policy, like bringing jobs back home and, mm -hmm. and Republicans just kind of more generally hawkish. Like I, I've always thought that the pivot that the Biden team needs to make is like, hey, we're tough. Mm -hmm. We've done much more than Trump in trying to make sure that America can compete and win for sure. the future of manufacturing and right. tech and everything. Right. But these guys on the Republican side could get us into a war and that's stupid. And so yeah. we need to be talking to China. And I think that's a message that Americans, like even Americans have concerns about China get like, I don't think Americans want a war with China. And so I think they need to start to message like, we need to be talking to these people as much as we can, even as we're trying to outcompete the hell out of them and stand up for our values because if we follow the logic of some of these mm -hmm. like far right voices in our own country that th that you know that risks a war and so i'm curious if this evolves in that direction and i think americans don't know how bad things got between the u.s yeah. and china because of that bipartisan consensus yeah. because there are so many people setting the conversation in washington who wanted things to get bad or thought like this is great yeah that i think people weren't getting the message that the, a lot of the rest of the world has been really freaked out by it yeah yeah as a, a, you know it, the war in ukraine has had huge you know repercussions on global economy and mm -hmm. food prices and mm -hmm. population flows like and it's a Nothing compared to what a conflict over Taiwan would be. Should we take a second to talk about the controversy with the Barbie film? Yeah, well, there we go. That's a good example. You know, Barbie uh, banned from Vietnam because there is a shot which you can actually see in the trailer where Barbie is standing in front of a like jumbled up cartoony world map, and on the like hexagon shape that I guess is supposed to be Asia, there is actually a nine dash line attached. The nine dash line, of course, is China's claim for the vast stretch of the South China Sea it says it controls, which 
it does not, according to anyone else in the world. And so Vietnam was very upset to see that in an American film and ban the movie. What are, you, are they being crazy, do you think, or do they have a do they have a case? I mean, they've got a case. I mean, here's what I'd say about this. First of all, the, the Chinese claim on the South China Sea is absurd. Sure. It's like yeah. they draw this line, the nine-dash line, around this entire body of water that snakes along the coast of countries like Vietnam mm-hmm. and Malaysia, right? So right. no rational person would look at that and say that makes any sense. And uh, as, some, as a as Southeast Asian leader once said in a bilateral meeting with President Obama about this, like, it's a shame that that it's named the South China Sea because right, it right. makes sense. Um, <laughs> but uh, but in international arbitration, it should be pointed out that that sure. impartial international arbitration is found in favor of say the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So just you know that that's relevant. But here's the stranger thing, Max. When you like look at maps, or when you like mm-hmm. you know um, uh, like I'm, I'm, I show my kids maps like. You don't normally draw a maritime boundary, right? <laughs> and so this has come up a bunch of times with like Disney yeah. properties, like ESPN. Right. Yeah. Like ESPN at times has like shown maps with the nine dash line on it. Really? And and oh. I don't think it's because like the, the that particular sports center host has a particular view about sure. you know, this. Right. And and it's not just Disney. Some other uh, you know airlines are pressured to do this and other things. It, it the. Abst- why are we even drawing maritime? Is there any other context in which like maritime <laughs> boundaries are drawn? Point. Like right. the Barbie map could right. have just had a map of the body water. Like right. it's kind of weird that they go this extra mile to draw this boundary. So yeah. I think it is Vietnam registering like, hey, we've seen China try to bully everybody by, you know, you know, using its leverage of mm-hmm. its market. Our market is minuscule compared to China's, but we're just going to show you that we can do the same thing, I guess, right. um, and gin up nationalist sentiment. I think a solution to all this would be to just leave maritime boundaries off of maps and movies. Right. Like that's my solution for world <laughs> peace for the time being. Yeah. I will say it's like, it's easy to laugh. Like I'm not obviously not for banning movies. Yes. And it's easy to kind of laugh off what Vietnam is doing. It's like wacky yeah. Asian geopolitics are being overly sensitive. Well, but the Chinese have done the inverse of plenty of times. Though. Right. And th- which is, we don't, I don't know if that's why it appeared in this film specifically i mean it's part it's possible that barbie is a wolf warrior for xi jinping thought and they just won in that market they they right, want right, barbie right, to be right, shown in right, china right, and one way right. to ensure you get on chinese screens is to put the nine dash line well and this is the thing the nine dash line has shown up in a lot of movies and i get why if you were vietnam and you were worried about we really need the force of the united states navy as the kind of international arbiter to not just be steamrolled by china in our own waters you worry about hollywood doing the work of the chinese government and teaching americans that this line has some kind of legitimacy yeah because you know there are all these sensors that control what can go on chinese movie screens right and again if you look at gross for these films like they make China's more money huge. in China than yeah. the U.S. often. Right. And it may be that they insist that you have to put the nine-dash line on if you want to get the maximum possible screens. Like, I've never been in those conversations, but, like, I don't think people would be doing it if there wasn't a reason for them to and do it. I don't, I, I, my point is, like, yeah. I don't think American film, I don't think Greta Gerwig was just, like, not that it was her choice, but she was a director. Like, it's like, you know what? Like, let's make sure in this <laughs> shot that we include the nine-dash line. Like, clearly somebody in corporate is making that decision because right. they went on those Chinese movie screens and right. that... Yeah, Vietnam is just trying to like make sure that that gets attention. The same way that Taiwan freaked out when the the Taiwanese uh, emblem was removed from the Top Gun flight jacket and Top Gun Maverick. Right, you know? like, right, so these, right. you know, people are pushing back in their own way. I'm very, very interested to see if in Oppenheimer he references the nine dash line <laughs> yeah, at some point. That, that'd be a tell. All right, should we go to uh, your interview with Julie yes, Smith? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I am very pleased to be joined by uh, the U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Ambassador Julianne Smith, a former, uh, well, longtime uh, official for Joe Biden. She was a Deputy National Security Advisor for Joe Biden in the Obama years and just one of the leading experts on, on Europe and transatlantic security in the world today. So thanks so much for joining us, uh, Ambassador. Thanks for having me on. So let's just kind of start with a couple issues that are dominating some attention, and then I, I want to get into kind of the, the broader NATO agenda. Obviously, a lot of focus on on Ukraine and its status, and the kind of basic reports are, you know, that uh, while there's a lot of passion for Ukrainian membership on a shorter term timeline, kind of the closer you get to the Russian border to like where you are in Lithuania, you know, the U.S. and Germany and other larger countries are um, obviously wanting to run a normal process where Ukraine has to meet the alliance standards, and and frankly, that you know recognizes that NATO membership in the the midst of a conflict is is not practical. What, what is success <laughs> from your standpoint? You know, you always think about success coming into these summits. Um, what is success for the United States perspective in terms of the message that is conveyed about potential Ukrainian membership in Vilnius? Yeah, sure. Um, I, in terms of success, I mean, it's pretty simple at the top. I mean, first and foremost, we descending here in Vilnius want to send one strong simple message to President Putin. And that is, you assumed that all of us would look away. You assumed that we would get distracted and give up and be occupied with something else a few months into this war. And the reality is, it's now been about 500 days, and no one's going anywhere. Not a single member of this alliance is wavering on its support for Ukraine. So that's the kind of overarching message that we'll be delivering. But more importantly, on the question of membership, I mean, there are different perspectives across the alliance. There's no question. It's not exactly as simple as some of the reporting makes it out to be. It's not just 29 times uh, against two. Uh, It's really 31 allies coming to the table and talking about 
number one, we all support that Ukraine will eventually become a member of the alliance someday because we said that in 2008, but different views around the table on what to say today in Vilnius. And I think after weeks of talking about this, we've landed in the middle. Everybody has had to travel some distance. And I think when President Zelensky comes to the summit this week, I think he's going to be pleased with the message that he gets, that this alliance is interested in enhancing its relationship with Ukraine. We're ready to provide more political support over the long term, not just for the war that's going on now, but to prevent future wars. Uh, and we're going to have some new and interesting things to say about their membership aspirations that'll be more than what we said in 2008. So without previewing exactly what we're going to get into at the summit, I will say I think President Zelensky is going to be pretty happy by the messages and the deliverables that he's going to have in hand here in Lithuania. I imagine, too, the part of what's complicated here is that um, there's the question of like full NATO membership, and then there's a question of what kind of security guarantees Ukraine might get from individual member states, you know, as part of some effort to wind down the war. On the full NATO membership, can, could you describe to people who may see things like Ukraine has to meet certain standards and has to undertake certain reforms and... Those are actually never indicated <laughs> what those are. I mean, it may be obvious to some people, okay, you can't really have full NATO membership that triggers uh, collective defense while Ukraine is in a war. That's something I think people can understand. But w- what does NATO mean? <laughs> what do countries mean when they talk about undertaking the necessary reforms and measures to become uh, capable of joining the alliance? Yeah, I mean, you you hit on the big one, and that is nobody across the alliance, not a single ally, is talking about issuing an invitation today. And in fact, President Zelensky himself has noted that that wouldn't necessarily be in the cards uh, because we don't extend membership while a war is raging on your territory. But above and beyond that, let's say there wasn't a war in Ukraine right now, and we were talking about some of the reforms they would have to undertake. I mean, there's just some general things that we focus on. For example, civilian control of the military. They have that. They can check that box. But then there's a whole list of things under the umbrella of a thriving democracy that has respect for the rule of law, that is taking the necessary anti-corruption measures. Um, There are things that the Ukrainians have been working on. They've made tremendous progress since 2000. And what we're going to do here in Vilnius is we're going to applaud all that good work, but we're also going to acknowledge, just as the Ukrainians themselves do, that there's more work to do, that they will have to take some additional steps as they move towards membership. And we'll get into that. And there's a program, not to get too nerdy here, but there's a whole annual national program, the ANP, it's called Inside NATO, that will help them map the steps that will have to continue to be pursued uh, before membership is on the table. So we're we're all for for nerding out a little bit here. Um, that's a good <laughs> okay, thing about great. a podcast. Good, good. And <laughs> so in that in that guys, I, I mean my my memory of these summits, right, is there's always the things dominating on the front burner, and the war in Ukraine is much bigger than anything that 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 I experienced in eight years. But then there's also always an alliance agenda, you know, of capabilities and um, alliance management that is uh, uh, kind of comes above above the surface of the water for summits. W- what, in your view, is is standing out in that 
regard. It, like I noticed, you know, there's been long discussion of the need to have planning, war planning for the defense of every ally. And um, I know that features uh, at, at this summit. What, 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 is, what is standing out to you separate from just the war? I know everything connects to that in terms of what is coming out of the work plan into Vilnius. Okay, well, thank you for asking about this because it doesn't always get the love and affection it deserves. So I will walk out for a minute and say that uh, this alliance is about to make a generational shift in its deterrence and defense posture. And I say that because we're about to roll out new regional plans that will literally enable us to defend every inch of NATO territory. You'll remember after 9-11, the alliance pivoted its focus to terrorism and to operations, expeditionary operations in faraway places. This moment for the Alliance is more of a coming home. We're returning to kind of the Alliance's core mission of collective defense. But in order to do that, we need plans in place to make sure that every member of this Alliance knows what capabilities they need, what part of the territory they're responsible for, the resourcing that's going to be required for it, what level of readiness their troops need to meet. And from these regional plans, all of those answers will fall out. And so what we're rolling out this week, again, which may not capture the headlines, will literally have an impact on this alliance for the next decade in terms of NATO's core mission, which is to ensure that we can defend NATO territory. So this is a big moment. It's really interesting to do that here in Lithuania, right up on the eastern flank, so close to what's happening in Ukraine. And the other piece of it is the Defense Investment Pledge. You'll remember in 2014, in the Obama administration, NATO allies pledged to spend 2% of GDP on defense. And that pledge had a 10-year timeline on it. And so it expires next year. And so the allies are gathering today to roll out a new defense investment pledge, um, which will be enduring and will basically lock in the 2% with the need to likely do more over time to meet the ambition that's laid out in those regional plans. So in addition to Ukraine, two big developments here in Vilnius, rolling out these regional plans and rolling out a new defense investment pledge. Yeah, no, and to, to give people a sense of how long the work is that leads into this, I mean, I, as you just indicated, Julie, I remember both of these things. Um, I mean, I remember early in the Obama administration being struck by the lack of any contingency planning for the defense of every inch of NATO territory. Right. And, and so that process was kind of set in motion back then. I mean, my, my follow-up on that is, if, if you're basically talking about, you know, real actual planning, right, uh, it, that is going to require resourcing over time for how do you defend against different scenarios, how do you defend different allies, does that, is that going to drive kind of physical resources? Like we've seen uh, the t- deployment of a lot more U.S. and other allied um, hardware and personnel to eastern uh, f- uh, front uh, states. Is that... Is that going to continue to evolve? Is that going to be made permanent? How does actual resourcing uh, fit in with these plans? Well, there's a couple pieces to it. I mean, obviously, last summer at the summit in Madrid, we had some major news, breaking news on force posture. So after Russia went into Crimea, NATO added four multinational battalions in Eastern Europe in the three Baltic states and Poland. And last year, after Russia went 
back into Ukraine, we added four more. So now we have these eight multinational battalions uh, on the eastern flank. All of them need to be scalable to a brigade. The plans won't radically change that, but they will make clear to allies not only how we have to keep ensuring that we can meet the requirements associated with those battalions. But now we have Finland that has almost doubled the amount of territory NATO has to defend on the eastern flank and providing, obviously, Finland provides enormous amount of capacity, but it also has to be worked into the plans so that we know how we will defend now that long border uh, with Russia and then Sweden hopefully will follow. Now, there's some other changes that will come with these plans, and that's C2, command and control. We're going to be making some changes. SACUR will have to alter kind of how we lay out the command structure across Europe and how that attaches to the command that we have in Norfolk, Virginia, which will likely have to be plussed up a little bit. It's a fairly small command. So yes, there will be changes that will require real resources, capabilities. We're going to have to align our forces and our national defense plans to these NATO plans. And for the United States, that's something we've often kind of held back from doing. We often say, okay, all of you can attach your national plans to NATO plans and just rest assured we'll be there for you. But this time, actually with SACUR's leadership, the U.S. is affiliating forces uh, to these plans and linking them up with our own national plans. So lots of movement, but I wouldn't say a radical shift in our force posture in Eastern Europe right now. Yeah, like an evolution. Um, That makes sense. And, And you mentioned Sweden is there a role for the alliance here to make the case? Or is this something that people just kind of look to the U.S. and other countries to be leading negotiations? And and what practically is held up from a planning standpoint, for instance, from Sweden not having the same formal membership that uh, Finland does? Yeah, so uh, it is kind of a question that's been handled through multiple layers. So first and foremost, when Turkey raised its hand and said, hold up, we have some concerns on the terrorism front, we basically created this trilateral format where Sweden, Finland, and Turkey could go off and meet and talk about how to address some of the concerns that Turkey had. And that was an important process. And it often involved the Secretary General. He offered his good offices on many occasions. And in fact, just last week, he had a meeting with the foreign ministers, chiefs of intelligence, and the national security advisors of all of those three countries fly out to Brussels to carry on with those conversations. So there's that piece. We want Sweden to be part of the regional plans, and they are not yet. They will be when they become members. Uh, And then lastly, there's the individual allies that can put their thumb on the scale, like the United States, to say, look, this is important for the United States. It's important for Sweden. It's important for the alliance. This is a country that is a security provider. They're going to bring an enormous amount of capacity to the alliance. It's going to fundamentally change the face of NATO. This is something we need to do sooner rather than later. And it's also important for our friends in the Nordic Baltic region, for a country like Lithuania, where we are right now, um, it's critical for them to have both Sweden and Finland in. It's very reassuring to widen the neighborhood of NATO allies uh, in this part of of the globe. So multiple layers at work. Uh, President Biden was able to connect with President Erdogan as he was flying on his way to London. That was an important engagement. Like I said, 
Secretary General Stoltenberg hosted a bunch of folks last week. We'll have allies talking about it here in Vilnius. It's it's uh, kind of all hands on deck. Yeah, it kind of like the, I mean, a lot of things in NATO these days. I mean, the, I was just going to, a, a couple of questions and one on NATO and one on you, just for people to understand, because they'll see these commitments at NATO, uh, the summit for, for Ukraine. How would you describe for the person watching this from the outside, when they hear about assistance going to Ukraine, they hear about these commitments that are generally made by individual nations, but they tend to be almost all NATO member states. What is the role of of NATO versus those individual nations? Like, how, how should someone think about is NATO delivering equipment into Ukraine or, are you know, how do you how do you describe to a, like a normal person who doesn't follow this uh, super closely what that division of labor is and what the alliance's role is in providing that assistance? Yeah. So uh, obviously we took a decision the day that the war started, probably before it started, that NATO would not be a party to the conflict. We did not want NATO to get directly involved. But we all came to the table that morning with a determination to not only strengthen the eastern flank to make sure that we had the deterrence and defense posture right on NATO territory, but that each of us would immediately begin providing humanitarian, economic, and security assistance in one shape or another. NATO NATO has been the place where we have maintained unity. NATO is the place where we shared intelligence in the months running up to the war to warn our friends in Ukraine and the allies about this war that we felt was uh, almost certain to, to happen. NATO is the place where we did all the necessary contingency planning to prepare for what eventually did transpire on February 24th. And NATO as an alliance, while it's not providing lethal support and it's not training Ukrainians, individual countries are doing that. We are providing non-lethal support and that's important things, whether it's winter gear in the winter months, night vision, goggles, fuel, um, a, a whole array of capabilities that the Ukrainians need uh, right now. So there is a role for the Alliance. I would say it's primarily a political one. It's where we maintain that unity. We grapple with the counteroffensive and changing events on the battlefield. But it is the US-led UDCG where over Ukraine Defense Contact Group, where over 50 countries come together and offer security assistance to Ukraine. Sometimes that was really well follow. done. And, and yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, but uh, thank you for spelling out the acronym for, for people. La last question for you. I mean, what is the life of a, of a NATO ambassador, right? It's a little different. I mean, some people are watching The Diplomat now. Um, <laughs> good show. Maybe, I'm not sure about the realism, but it's pretty good. Um, but but this is not a normal embassy, right? Because you're not just representing uh, the United States to a country. Like, how does that look on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, how much are you traveling? How do you like it? You know, um, uh, just what's it like uh, behind the curtain in the life of Ambassador Julianne Smith? Well, I love it. I absolutely love it. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in this moment. You know what a NATO nerd I am. Uh, it's a brand that, you know, I wear with pride. Um, but uh, you're right. It isn't It isn't kind of your average diplomatic posting. Um in the bilateral postings, you take on a whole array of duties that can cross cultural, economic, and trade priorities, foreign policy. Um, but at NATO, it's focused almost exclusively, obviously, on national security matters. Almost everybody who works uh, at our mission 
comes from the State Department or DOD, there are some exceptions, but you don't, for example, have folks from commerce. I mean, it's a, it's a very mm -hmm. different op tempo. You have a lot of high level visitors coming through Brussels and coming through NATO, especially now. So we're running all the time, but it has multiple layers. The U.S. is trying to provide leadership inside the NATO alliance on countless issues. We're trying to not only stay focused on Ukraine, but provide leadership on issues like the PRC, uh, emerging and disruptive tech, cyber and space. Um, we're working with the interagency to make sure the voices and views of allies are inserted into that process. Um, and working, obviously, with individual allies on specific issues. You know, we're a multilateral organization but we don't always work at 31. There are clusters of countries that come together to solve problems. Sometimes we're working with countries on climate security. Sometimes a group of us will focus on events in the Balkans. So it's a job that seems to change with the minute. And I love that. Um, but it can be challenging to keep pace with all of that from day to day. I bet. I mean, I can't even imagine the line of congressional delegations and, oh. and because of the war yeah you must be uh you, you're not you're not like hosting parties in the same way that some ambassadors are to countries but oh, you no. are entertaining yeah. so yeah. Uh, <laughs> we appreciate you making time for us uh I, this would be a dramatic summit uh in vilnius to the nato nerd thing i'll never forget the first north atlantic council that's what they call it the, you know these summits that i attended um i walk in with mark lippert uh talk about nato nerds because <laughs> You know, we walk in and suddenly all the, you know, the panorama of generals and politicians and aides scurrying around is there. And he just leans over and whispers in my ear, my whole life, I've wanted to go to a knack. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was like, uh, it, you know, to some people, that it's is like moment. literally yeah. the, the uh, as good as it gets. So I know, I know we're glad to be represented by someone who has that passion. And, um, and, and so thanks for everything you're doing. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Julie Smith for coming on the show. And thanks to you, Ben, for having me to fill in. What Max, a pleasure. This is like a Purgosian style mutiny. We should have told people. <laughs> Tommy's actually not on vacation. Uh, he's locked up in a closet. So you, that, you could uh, take this march on Moscow. I think know? he should accept exile in Belarus, <laughs> yeah, yeah, finally. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> We've got a great camp for him set up. Like, I, we didn't dwell on this, but like, the fact that they were like touring the... Wagner camp. Oh my God. Like, the, so the, Bel Belarus is loving its moment in the sun. I think uh, they kind of are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but hopefully, no, Tommy is on vacation and uh, hopefully it's a good break. Uh, but yeah, it's great to, great to have you fill in. It's been a lot of fun. It was a blast. And Tommy will be back next week. Cool. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. 
wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.